and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting to you internationally, both in Canada and the United States, on the Big Talker 106.7 FM in Wilmington, North Carolina, and on Saga 960 AM in the Peel region, Ontario, Canada. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, joined as always by my colleague David Clement up there in Toronto. David, sir, how goes it, my good man? Well, it's going well. It's going well. It's... Um... It's very hot out, and I got a new road bike. So summer is in full swing. Um, Hopefully Ontario can get to reopening a little quicker um, than the original plan. But you know what? I'm I'm starting to get used to it, 13 months in. Um, But yeah, excited about this road bike. Nice road bike. I hope nobody hits you in the face with a a piece of cardboard and you trip over. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine, like... You train your whole life, and you're in this huge, huge race, and some some loser hops on the track and hits you with a sign because they're trying to get a selfie. Yeah, this is, uh, I believe it was a German girl hanging out at the Tour de France and uh, held out the uh, piece of cardboard there, and uh, one of the riders hit it and uh, caused a, a terrible collision uh, we would call a, I guess we call it a, a multi-vehicle incident, a pileup. Uh, that was that was bad. And I guess they, they were they were trying to sue her, and she had fled. She got on a flight, and they had no idea where she went. Uh, yeah, this is not a thing to do. You can't just, uh, you know, you don't go to the F1 track and uh, you know throw a big log in the middle of the track. You, or, you just don't do that. Just imagine in like a baseball game. A fan, like a guy's about to catch a fly ball to like end the game, and a fan runs out and pushes him. Uh, or I mean, you very rarely see that in in Norton. You 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 get your occasional streaker, but uh, they usually have the courtesy of waiting uh, until time is called in whatever the sport is. They very rarely jump on the field mid-play, mostly because it's dangerous. Um, but yeah, could you just imagine like a yeah, and everybody wants to see the the play completed. You can't you can't just go in there and interrupt no, it. No, exactly, exactly. Perfect. Well, uh, for those of you who uh, did not listen to last week's, I would highly recommend it. Uh, I was not on the program. David flew solo with our colleague Elizabeth Hicks and had a great interview with Peter Jaworski. Uh, you can listen to that over at consumerchoiceradio.com, where we have our podcast version, RSS, uh, the YouTube channel. And everything else. And uh, David, it was great because you and Elizabeth, uh, our colleague Liz, as we call her, you were able to unveil uh, the Electric Vehicle Accessibility Index. Uh, could you just explain that again? I think it'd be interesting for some of our listeners uh, l- listening throughout North America to kind of know what the day to day is of our work here at Consumer Choice Center. Yeah, so basically, it came to my attention that there were some states with some really bad laws in regards to electric vehicles. So the two key things that we focused on were um, if a state allows for direct-to-consumer sales. Um, and so right now that's predominantly Tesla, but it would ultimately be open up, it would open up to any EV manufacturer. And so there are actually a ton of states that ban the direct sale of electric vehicles, so much so that they actually ban the auto manufacturer from owning a dealership and they ban them from owning like service centers, like the equivalent of like a mechanic shop for how you would service an EV. And so we took that um, as a factor and then we took the licensing fees because a bunch of states have increased the licensing fee for electric vehicles 
to try and recover lost gas tax revenue. Um, and from our perspective, I mean, that's pretty ridiculous when you consider the purpose of the gas tax, right? The gas tax is supposed to be a tool. Um, I don't really like gas taxes because they're regressive. But if you're going to have them, they're used to discourage fossil fuel use. And so that's exactly what electric vehicle consumers are doing, right? They're not using any gas. And now they're getting punished with um, registration fees at your state licensing facility that are 300 times or like 300% higher, 400% higher, 500% higher. So we worked on an index um, with our two great interns as well and mapped out what it looks like across the United States. And the feedback has been great. Uh, I mean, a lot of news outlets, especially in those problematic states, have jumped all over this. We've had a couple state senators in Wisconsin um, continue the push to to put forward bills that would get rid of some of these silly laws. And so it's just one of those things where I think everybody wants better outcomes for the environment. And the electric revolution in terms of vehicles is like, it's certainly starting, um, but these kind of outdated or archaic rules at the state level really limit consumer choice. And so um, we're hopeful that we can see some changes um, at the state level in terms of these rules so that consumers can have as much access as possible, um, especially if states are going to mandate that elect that the vehicles sold by a certain date are all electric vehicles, which some states have done. I know Canada has done. I don't like that either. Um, because it, one, obviously restricts consumer choice, but it could have some really negative um, implications for low-income people. Um, but if you're going to try and mandate that, you have to make it as accessible as possible. Otherwise, we're, otherwise we're not going to have supply meet demand. Um, and, I mean, economics... Will- and that's another issue where you really only see the impact of that if you actually go out and try to buy one. Yeah, oh yeah. You know, if you actually try to... You you saved up the money, uh, you know you've arranged the loan. You're able to go out and buy the product, and you only figure out that it becomes so difficult uh, when you're actually trying to place the order. And it's just another situation where you have the money, you're ready to buy something. It's like, why do they make it so difficult? Why do they have to continuously get involved and intervene to make it more difficult for me and not easier? Well, and, and we heard actually from some people who purchased electric vehicles in some of these problematic states, and they actually had to get the car shipped to an address in another state, then have it transported to their home state to register it um, because of this direct sale ban. And so it's just like, guys, why are you doing this? You, If you want to encourage commerce, you want to encourage um, people to, to be able to make some of these decisions more freely, why on earth are you restricting this? And the and, and the thing is, is, I mean, right now, it exists really to protect the existing industry. But in terms of what my proposal is, I don't think that just electric vehicles should be able to be sold directly. I think that all vehicles should be able to be sold directly. I mean, we live at a time where information is essentially limitless in terms of reviews and all of that jazz. The, I mean, the dealer franchise model may have its merits, but I, I say let's put it up against the direct-to-consumer model and see what consumers like and what they want um, and apply that for all vehicles. So um, we'll see. We'll see. Hopefully hopefully we get some, some movement on uh, some of these silly rules. And it's the, exactly that kind of issue that we're covering day in and day out at the Consumer Choice Center. That's what we try to 
I give you some summary of here on the Consumer Choice Radio Show. I can go to our website, consumerchoicecenter.org as well, and you'll find plenty of other examples. Or maybe there are some issues that you're facing as a consumer, some type of regulation you're not aware about or something that is making it more difficult for you to get a particular product or service. We are all ears. Uh, happy to hear those all across North America. Uh, there's plenty of examples that we had. Uh, so that is an example that David and our colleague Elizabeth were able to put together and uh, got some fairly good media coverage. So that was great. Uh, very, very, very oh, yeah. big kudos there. We sh- should use this. Yeah, thank you. We should use that opportunity as well. So on the Consumer Choice Center's website, consumerchoicecenter.org, we actually have a tips page where you can submit all this. Um, and people occasionally do. They submit regulations that are bothering them in all sorts of industries. So definitely encourage anyone who's listening um, who is tired of the government intervening in your choices um, to go ahead and submit a tip because, I mean, there are so many instances of really bad um, regulations on the books. And so bring them to our attention and uh, we will fight the good fight. There we go. And that's exactly what we're about. So uh, continue listening and uh, give us those tips. Uh, One issue I wanted to bring up, David, relates to a recent article that you had published in the Financial Post, Um, and I'll give a little bit of a North American spin as well. So in North Carolina this week, the settlement was announced of the lawsuit between the state of North Carolina uh, and Jewel, uh, the vaping company, and that is $40 million to the state of North Carolina. And that was is supposed to go to vaping education and making sure that teens don't vape. Uh, but of course, all this means is that adult consumers, particularly those who are smokers trying to quit, will no longer have access and are basically are being pumped and primed. And that's really what it's about, unfortunately. And uh, north of the border, uh, there's another issue having to do with flavors and uh, something that was played through in the United States, uh, even throughout the Trump presidency and is happening in various jurisdictions. And I saw that even Washington, D.C., where we often meet David, uh, they have also banned vaping flavors. So what's happening up in Canada as well? Yeah, so essentially Ottawa wants to ban all flavors with the exception of mint, uh, tobacco, and menthol. And so in the piece, I, I, I mean... It, it ha- I guess it has to be restated because so many people just don't understand. So one, vaping is an incredibly useful harm reduction tool to get people away from smoking. And I think that that's something that most of the population is on board with. I know that, that we're certainly in the camp who, who wants better outcomes in that regard. Um, but really, this impacts around 650,000 Canadian consumers who actually currently rely on the flavors that would be banned. And so I just walk through the evidence on how this will likely drive those people back to smoking. Um, And what's, I guess, hilarious and really irritating is that the government's own submission, um, so whenever they put these policies together, they do like an impact evaluation on the industry. And... In their own words, they said that vapors would choose to purchase more cigarettes, which would offset the loss for retailers. And so their own documents are admitting that this policy is going to drive people back to smoking. It's what we've seen in virtually every jurisdiction um, that has banned flavors. And so we really are throwing adult smokers who are trying to quit under the bus. 
And these are the people who need our help, right? They're trying to quit. They don't want to smoke anymore. Um, maybe they've tried other avenues and it hasn't worked. Um, and the thing is, is that I know people like in my own personal life, I won't name them, um, several who used vaping as a means to step away from cigarettes and then quit vaping um, just because it was easier to step away from that. And so they com- they're completely tobacco and nicotine free now as a result of uh, of vaping. And then on the flip side, I actually know of several people who, as, as a result of some of the restrictions, um, unfortunately went back to smoking. And it's just, a, I mean, I don't think you could create worse public policy um, than driving people back to smoking. And so the, the, the piece just outlines all of the evidence of why this is a bad idea and really why it's hypocritical. Because I mean, the liberals have really championed harm reduction for illicit drugs, whether it's like safe injection sites or all of the other things that they're doing. And I think that those are all great policies, right? Because it ultimately save people's lives. But the issue is, is that they have a huge blind spot here. And in my opinion, harm, harm reduction should really guide all drug policy, whether those drugs are legal or not. And so that's really where Ottawa is missing the mark. And, th- and thank you for making that distinction between... Uh, these products, uh, these are vaping nicotine products and traditional tobacco products. That is the nuance that kills every, all of the, the sanity around this is killed by no no difference between them. And that's exactly what a lot of the traditional anti-tobacco groups do is they fundraise so much to go after vaping devices, which don't have tobacco, sorry. <laughs> but uh, they're able to use that wording and that language and, and shape that. Uh, really unfortunate. So we'll, we'll link to David's piece there in the Financial Post, uh, making sure we can get that out there. Stay tuned here to Consumer Choice Radio. A lot more to come on the program, talking about uh, some of Elon Musk's projects, a little bit about antitrust, some executive orders, and a little bit of holiday preview, because I know we got uh, a holiday to celebrate today in Canada and in the U.S. over the weekend. So we'll be right back after this. And we are back here on Consumer Choice Radio, ConsumerChoiceRadio.com, broadcasting on Saga 960 AM and the Big Talker 1067 FM. David, I would I would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, the grand holiday celebration uh, that we're celebrating today. Today, Thursday, uh, celebrating Canada Day. So happy Canada Day to all the Canadian listeners, everyone around Saga, uh, those of you who are listening on the podcast version David, what you got planned for uh, Canada Day? If, if you uh, if you got any good tips on what other people can do? Yep, uh, I mean I got a tea time booked, so I will be golfing, um, one of my favorite pastimes, um, and then probably have a couple beers. You know, just enjoy the day, enjoy the weather. Um, that's that's a, a big one for me. Take some time to unwind, as I think many people do, whether you're celebrating Canada Day today or the Fourth of July um, next week. There's a big debate, though, in Canada in regards to the cancellation of Canada Day. And so for our American listeners who maybe aren't up to date on on some of the internal politics in Canada, um, the Canadian government, um, in in kind of partnership with the Catholic Church, uh, for decades created something called residential schools, which were atrocious institutions that basically took indigenous children away from their families to try and assimilate them into 
British culture or white Anglo-Saxon culture. And these were really horrific institutions, and some some folks found essentially a mass grave of children where one of these used to be. And so there's an ongoing conversation about whether or not we should cancel Canada Day in response to those revelations. And I don't think that canceling Canada Day is a good idea, um, mostly because there's still so much to be proud of. Um, and, and in the same way that, I mean, canceling the 4th of July because the United States um, has a troubled past in, I mean, pick any issue. Um, I don't think that that's an appropriate solution. I do think that we can probably take some time to reflect. I know that Trudeau will put the flag at half-mast um, on Parliament Hill uh, today, which I actually think is an appropriate response because, it, I mean, it is a truly shameful uh, mark on our nation's history. Um, but I don't think that that completely undermines all of the great things that we have to celebrate here in Canada. And then the same goes for Americans celebrating the 4th of July. Although, uh, I think if people were to push to cancel the 4th of July, there would be uh, less of a positive response in the U.S. I'm not sure if you agree, but I don't think you can, uh, I don't think you could take the 4th of July away from, uh, from our American friends. Well, they tried to a little bit with uh, the pandemic stuff, you know, saying that uh, essentially the opening date uh, post-pandemic will be the July 4th. That was uh, the idea is you can have your cookouts and your barbecues and uh, if we only get to the particular numbers. But yeah, I've, I've read about this. Uh, David followed it a little bit. I, You know, it's this kind of thing to where the... And look, I don't think I'd consider myself a nationalist. I know that you likely would not consider yourself a nationalist either, um, mostly because I'm very conflicted. <laughs> but, you know, having yeah. <laughs> been in different countries, it tends to do that to you. Uh, but, you know, when it when it comes to this, the things about national pride and symbols and various holidays. I mean, that's beautiful. It's amazing. You know, it's great to know whenever you go to a different place that they celebrate their own history and their culture. And yeah, the bad and the good and recognizing the bad. And I, the, the entire thing about trying to restructure everything and because of, of something that might have happened uh, 200 years ago, a particular thing, we need to cancel the holiday today. Does that mean that all the other holidays in the past, you know, 100 years were illegitimate? I don't know. It just seems like a very low bar. You know, where are the actual reforms? You say you want to address this stuff. Yeah. What are you going to do? Where's the committee? Where's the commission? Where's the report? Where's the law change? Uh, that's what we do every day, David, is actually look at what are the rules and regulations. And a lot of this just comes down to, to really, it's symbolism on all sides. But, you know, I, I see it as, as very troubling. Because, you know, these are things that a lot of people, particularly new immigrants, you know, if they come to a place, if all of a sudden everyone is ashamed of being Canadian or being American or, I mean, let's not even talk about Germany, you know, you're not able to put the flag out, not allowed to call yourself a patriot, any of that stuff. I find it very problematic, and I, I'm not uh, a pure nationalist apart from, you know, Quebec independence. We can talk about that another time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it just seems, well, it just mean, seems so problematic. Well, yeah, you're right. It does nothing for, I mean, our government's relationship with indigenous communities has always been a problem. I mean, the, they, the, many of these indigenous communities live in a level of poverty that most North Americans just can't 
wrap their heads around. It's, they are truly horrific conditions. So let's do something about that. Let's make some serious efforts to reconcile by ensuring that these communities don't need to boil water anymore. Um, that they have proper infrastructure and health care provision so that the the average lifespan of of uh, of a let's say a man in one of these communities isn't 45 or 50 or whatever it is um, I think that would be the appropriate way to recognize the atrocities of the past um, trying to cancel Canada Day doesn't do anything in that regard yeah, let's let's um, so, please stop yeah, trying to the... politicize absolutely everything, including our days off. Come on, guys! <laughs> like <laughs> we have all the other days of the year to discuss and debate and propose solutions. Just don't do it on the days that we're off. Yeah, yeah. Um, although there was a proposal for some sort of um, like I, I, I wanna, I'm using the words like day of reflection, but it was essentially like an opportunity to like acknowledge. Um, the atrocities of the past, that would that's certainly better than canceling Canada Day. Um, it still feels a little bit like an empty gesture, um, although symbolically it has meaning. It, it doesn't do anything to provide any reform for these people. Um, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, leave, <laughs> leave the day off alone, um, and let's figure out a way to make the lives better for these people who have been wronged um, because they have been wronged, and work needs to be done. Um, yeah, so that's uh, that's my take on Canada Day and the push to uh, the vocal minority pushing to cancel yeah, it. There you go. That's a little bit of that. Let's keep celebrating. So happy uh, Canada Day to our Canadian listeners, uh, to those of you who are, are tuned in, and I uh, hope you're enjoying those festivities. And, uh, yeah, whatever you might do. I know in Quebec it's moving day. And uh, there's a lot more to celebrate and look at. Uh, for this weekend, David, I will be using uh, the concurrent holidays because uh, as a dual national, I can choose whatever holiday to celebrate. So naturally, that's both for me. And uh, I'm going to head on over to the F1 race oh, here in Austria. Very cool. Very cool. I've always – I used to go to um, – I used to go to the race in Toronto every year with my grandpa. And – it's a really cool experience, but you got to be used to, like, we would have pretty good seats. Um, and it's not like NASCAR where you're so above the race for the most part in the stands and you can, like, see the race transpire. You're, for us, we were closer, and it was like my grandpa would tap me, and he'd be like, here they come. And then would do, nom, 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 nom. and I'd be like, what happened? He's like, oh, they just drove by us. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh, oh. like eight-year-old yeah, that, me. That's the, the road course does that. Yeah, so um, and that, that'll be fun for you to, to go there. I know that you come from a racing family, a um, little bit of NASCAR royalty in my opinion. But um, what's yeah like? What do you? What is your favorite part about going to a race like that? Yeah, I think it's uh, you know being able to see the other fans and interacting with the crowd. I think is always really fun. Uh, again, this is going to be a European race, so I have. I don't think I've been to a European race. I've tried. Uh, it's been hard to, to actually gather the masses to go. Uh, F1 races are typically incredibly expensive. You know, a NASCAR race, you can get there usually for about 40 bucks. Um, I mean, when I used to go to the races in, in small town Quebec, it was, you know, five bucks. You know, it, was, it was easy to go in. Uh, but F1 races are much more expensive. Uh, fortunately, these are general admission tickets. So you're just kind of camped out in like, I think, turn 11. 
Uh, you bring your camping chair. No coolers allowed. What? Of course. That's the COVID regulation. Is that just a way for you, for them to get you to buy their beer? Basically, yes. And this is a trend across uh, <laughs> most uh, racetracks, it seems, around the world and most sporting events. But, you know, typically when it comes to auto racing, uh, coolers have always been fair play uh, because you're out there, you know, for three or four hours, hot sun, you know, you, you deserve to be able to bring your own cooler with beers and ice and whatever you want to put in there. Uh, unfortunately, not able to do that for this race, but it's going to be a good time. It's, it'd be interesting. Uh, first time, uh, no, I've been on a road course before out in uh, Watkins Glen, New York, uh, not far from the Canadian border uh, for a race many, many years ago, but this is going to be pretty cool and uh, interesting to see the Europeans. It's not going to be the same redneck crowd I'm used to. Uh, so maybe I'll be the only people tailgating. You know, we'll be the only ones there uh, in the parking lot and everything. And uh, it will be actually on July 4th. Well, uh, so that once be, we've uh, kind of interesting to see. Well, once we've finally uh, made it and we're bigwigs, um, something that's been on my bucket list is the race in Monaco. I want to be sitting on one of the yachts in the harbor there in Monaco watching watching the race. So uh, add that to your list of things to save up. Oh, yeah. we'll make it happen. Oh, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll make that happen. So yeah, all, all types of festivities. And of course, uh, on July 3rd, uh, moving it around, we are going to be, and this is a joint celebration, uh, going to be smoking some uh, some meat out there on the offset smoker, make some, uh, some pulled pork, both for Canada Day and July 4th. Roll it all into one for the Austrians, making sure my neighbors continue to hate me. And uh, yeah, enjoy the good life. I was life. gonna say, hopefully they don't call, hopefully they don't call the bylaw officer on you again. <laughs> no, probably, but uh, that's fine. I just gotta, you know, set aside an extra plate, uh, so so that'll be fun. <laughs> it's the kind of stuff you gotta deal with in this world, you know, your impact on the neighbors and uh, making sure you get a product. That's why, if we can uh, transition over to consumer corner, David, one thing I've been looking at a lot. Oh yeah, are these um, pellet grills? You know, pellet grills that allow you yep. to to smoke meat but to do so in a uh, more consistent fashion using a, a electronic controller and auger that pushes these compressed wood pellets uh into the grill and burns it at the particular temperature at the particular uh, particular time uh super easy to do less smoke overall i'm looking at it you know it's uh it's interesting but uh you know this is the unfortunate thing about being in europe is that typical consumer products uh, just because of, you know, the country and the, the borders and a lot of the regulations, stuff is just way more expensive here. And uh, disposable income much lower in European countries because of taxation. So uh, Canadians and Americans have it pretty good when it comes to these type of markets. Well, we'll have to get you a Traeger grill. Because uh, based on my limited research... Yeah, Tra Traeger's, uh, you know, they, they hit about a thousand bucks. So <laughs> Traeger's are a bit, uh, a bit above the budget for now. Yeah. Um, I mean, in other news, oh. um, outside of barbecuing and and uh, and racing, we did have a fairly big court decision on Facebook, um, and I know you've been digging into this um, probably since the beginning of really when these lawsuits were launched, these antitrust lawsuits. So I think just give our our listeners a primer on what the government thought it was doing and what the result is um, in terms of how that court case was adjudicated. So these are two different uh, court cases. One of them was batched together uh, by, I, I believe, around 48 states in the United States, 46 to 48 states, uh, to do an antitrust complaint against Facebook. And essentially, they're trying to prove that they were a monopoly. And also, they were uh, objecting 
to their purchasing of Instagram, uh, which most of you are scrolling through at this moment. Uh, and basically, that was back in 2012. So they were trying to put together a challenge to that purchasing. So that was one lawsuit. And then the other was by the Federal Trade Commission itself. Uh, the FTC is uh, the sort of the body in charge of, of regulating uh, trade and commerce domestically. And uh, the judge in those cases dismissed both of them, saying that they have not provided enough information to show that they are monopolies and that they really have all the information to back their case. And then for Instagram, basically saying that too long had passed since that time uh, to try to get any type of injunctive relief. So big success for consumers. Things carry on. Uh, things carry on as always. So happy to see. Uh, David, I got a couple other things on my docket. Uh, I know we'll get to it here in the next segment. Stay tuned. Consumer Choice Radio. We'll be right back after this. Well, life has nearly killed me and my mind is putting me on And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, we were just uh, chatting about the lawsuits against Facebook in regards to Instagram and monopoly powers. Um, I mean, it, it was kind of hilarious to see the reaction. Elizabeth Warren, um, not our favorite U.S. senator, um, tweeted that it was outrageous and that obviously Facebook was a monopoly. And I'm not sure if... Uh, I'm not sure if anyone in her office advised her that it was maybe counterproductive to tweet that Facebook had a monopoly because that really undermines her point, uh, which I thought was quite hilarious and shows. Yeah, that's yeah, 100%. Like she's completely disconnected. It's 100% right. And a lot of this is, unfortunately, everyone is going into this with the worst of intentions ever. And a lot of it is in bad faith. Because everybody has their own bone to pick with many of these social media companies. Believe me, we could sit down all day and I'll tell you all the beef I got <laughs> with all the different companies and things that I've had deleted or censored or some copyright thing. I mean, there's always something that comes up. And that's kind of what's so problematic about this is there are things that are, are done on these platforms that are a policy, that are objectionable, and that consumers and users have a right to gripe about. That's very different from changing the entire structure of how you police companies, antitrust, monopolies, business deals, acquisitions, and mergers just because of some temporary consideration at some tech company. That's a dangerous precedent. Very, very dangerous. And if you look at Instagram here, so we've talked about this in the past. Everybody laughed when Facebook bought Instagram. All of the headlines from all of all of the major financial reporters were like, "What a what a terrible purchase by Facebook. This is a joke. Like, good luck trying to make it happen. You overpaid for a bad product." And so, Facebook obviously invests a ton of money into Instagram. They turn it into, in my opinion, uh, a very enjoyable platform. It certainly has some of some issues, but a very enjoyable platform that people really love. Um, years go by, it gets bigger, it becomes more successful, it really becomes its own commerce channel as a result. And then the government, years after the fact, goes, oh yeah, we should have blocked that a decade ago. It's like, no, it's, it's, this, this isn't uh, Google buying 
uh, Apple and Microsoft to create one super company that controls everything. This was a this was Facebook buying a startup and turning it into a viable product, and so just a complete misuse. And and it's also from it's from all of that know how you know that knowledge that they brought to the table, the investment, the various tweaks that they were able to give the algorithm, their own business know how that they injected into this new product that they acquired that led it to be so successful. It's not, you know, this this is the kind of thing that so many people take for granted is that innovation is not just something that happens, you know, naturally, and that's it. You need to have all the good incentives in place. And if you have bad incentives, or if you have bad structures, or if you have the constant threat of some type of body, whether it be in one country or another, coming back and saying, this is legal, this is illegal, I mean, that is not an environment uh, to exist in. You know, it's, 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 it's as if we're doing this program right now, and all of a sudden, you know, we're not allowed to say the word tax, and then they go back, and because we said the word tax in episode three, uh, all of a sudden we're kicked off the air or something like that. It's, it's just very bad in, in a way to, you know, police and enforce, and it just goes to show what happens when we politicize a lot of ordinary regulations that are supposed to be in place to provide some framework and instead, it's all just part of this game, this gotcha game that's trying to cut down those. Um, in Australia, I believe they call it the tall poppy syndrome. You know, the tallest of poppies, the most of successful ones will always be cut down. Yeah, and I, I don't think a lot of the supporters of that move to try and separate Facebook from Instagram realize what that would, the precedent that would have set. And so think about any um, consumer product that you buy right, a deodorant brand, your favorite brand of crackers or cookies, more often than not, that is owned, that brand has been bought at some point in time between the 80s and now um, by one of a handful of larger companies who are in that industry. Um, So imagine if retroactively, the government could just go back and say, hey, when you bought Kraft Dinner, uh, now you control too much of the market, so we're going to break you up. Or now when you bought um, Gillette razors, oh, that's too much now. Like it would set the, the most dangerous precedent in regards to how commerce is done in the United States. Um, and it would have been us holding the bag um, and yeah. suffering as a result sure. of it. And it's the same with, um, it's n- and it's not just technology. It's also, you know, the guy who owns the tire shop. Or it's the dental clinic and the network, you know, that that you know has to have different uh, clinics. Maybe maybe even it's a hospital chain, you know, that has various hospitals in their portfolio. And this relates to an article in the Wall Street Journal about a forthcoming action from the Biden administration. Biden weighs new executive order restraining big business. Uh, so this is apparently a planned executive order. Uh, that will tell all the regulating authorities in the United States, the agencies, uh, to basically give them more discretion in terms of figuring out how they can use rules uh, to try to clamp down on various companies in order to, quote, inject more competition and to give consumers, workers, and suppliers more rights to challenge large producers. That sounds to me like lawsuits waiting to happen. And, um, David, I don't think we have a better example than uh, the state of California, and I have just the right person uh, to talk about this. Are you ready for this clip? Let's hear it. 
So this is a clip from uh, one of our favorite programs, David, where we'll both make our debut, hopefully very soon, uh, Real Time with Bill Maher. You know, it's not like California doesn't know how to regulate. Oh, Uh, Oh, they know. They know. We are the most regulated state in the nation with more than 395,000 regulatory restrictions. It is a constant nightmare of inspectors and permits and fees. In this state, if you get to your car 10 seconds after the parking meter expires, it's already gone and you'll never see it again. (laughs) California has rules about every nitpicky thing you can imagine. If you don't believe me, try parking in Santa Monica. Or starting a business, or getting your solar power hooked up. You can't fly a kite. Uh, those are the Democrats we need. Oh yeah. Well, is, he. Oh, he he ain't even done. <laughs> okay, let's let's keep going. In Beverly Hills, or ride a bicycle, or climb a tree. But for 30 years, Nestle took water out of the San Bernardino National Forest under a permit that expired in 1988. And Coca-Cola is somehow allowed to take water from municipal water supplies, stick it in bottles, and sell it back to the taxpayers who own the water to begin with. 395,000 regulations, but somehow that slipped through the cracks? No, I, I left in the last point just to make sure that he's not 100% on board with the consumer choice agenda. <laughs> no, of course not. But, I mean, he does highlight a, a important point, is that ordinary people and small businesses don't have the resources to navigate properly all of these complex rules. Your large companies certainly do. And whether or not they're deserving of an exemption and permits, that's probably a conversation for another day. But the bigger you make the regulatory state the more disproportionate the impact is on ordinary people and small businesses because they don't have they don't have um they don't have million dollar attorneys um combing through how to find a loophole they're just stuck paying the fees or the fines and having the permits and all of all of the kind of burdensome nonsense that various levels of government do so it's it's one of those things where it's like yeah we're trying to take on big business and it's like well you're actually throwing consumers and small businesses under the bus, under whatever this silly banner it is that you think you're carrying. Exactly. It all comes down to compliance costs. You know, it's no accident that the big four huge consulting companies, you know, their specialty, their specialty is everything related to regulatory compliance. It's totally insane. It is in basically every jurisdiction, and even more so if you're just, you know, a, a local business that wants to sell to someone uh, who happens to be across the border, uh, not even in COVID times, in normal times. Uh, so it, it's made all the more complicated. I think it was a good point by Bill Maher. It was like a nugget that I found in uh, one of one of the episodes. There's been some great clips uh, from him lately that we could play, but uh, yeah, it's not, not the Bill Maher program. This is Consumer Choice Radio. And uh, speaking of that, I got another one, David, a good example of uh, innovations happening. Uh, this is from Elon Musk. Not a clip, but an article. Uh, Elon Musk says Starlink will be available worldwide in August. Uh, SpaceX expects to service more than 500,000 consumers with its low-altitude satellite broadband within a year. 
Now, to give a sort of resume of this, there are currently 1,800 satellites that have been launched into space by uh, various um, of the rockets by SpaceX, and these are supposedly going to provide very cheap satellite internet uh, to people across the world. Uh, apparently, it's going to be just about 100 US dollars a month, and uh, it's a one-time equipment fee, about uh, $500. Uh, but then you have internet wherever you are. You don't need to have additional wires. You don't have it, uh, have to have all the additional doodads. And that is something that is intended to people who are in poorer countries or places that are, are not as well connected. Uh, seems like an awesome venture. Obviously, it's going to cost money. He says it co- it will cost between $5 billion to $10 billion to deploy that. Uh, but look at this. I mean, is this something that we even would have thought you know, not more than three years ago, the fact that we could have internet when we don't have much competition in most of our countries uh, for internet service providers to think that we would be getting internet from the sky. I mean, it's incredible. It's, it's And it highlights, so like there are also, whether it's in Canada or the US, there are all these questions about broadband and rural communities and the government kind of trudging its way to try and figure it out. And of course they never do. And it's the same companies that, pretty much control um, all uh, internet service, whether you're in the U.S. or Canada. And it's like, well, you can waste your time and your years and taxpayer dollars trying to figure this out, or you can let people with cool ideas trying to f- try to figure it out. And that's exactly what's happening. Um, you, you have a guy like Elon Musk being like, no, I think we can do better. Um, now, is it a good product? We don't know. Um, it, yeah, I, I, I have no reason to doubt it. Um, but it's an incredible, I'm tempted, I'm tempted to order one actually. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if we owned our house, uh, we probably would. Cause I think you need a roof to put something or you need outdoor space. Uh, I don't know how actually what the logistics are. You have to let me know. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, well, you do have to place the satellite and they have like a particular app to do it uh, a bit hard on atop my apartment building. <laughs> I'd have to uh, borrow a, a fairly big cherry picker or ladder to get up there. Uh, but, you know, definitely for rural communities, I mean, thinking about it, you know, for many areas where you don't have good hookups or you just don't have a cheap internet, that's something that would be an amazing alternative. And, uh, you know, I can already see the roadblocks that would be placed. I can already see the decrying of uh, various groups that would come out or legislators saying that, you know, this needs to be mandated or, uh, you know, some type of, of ridiculous rule will come down the pike uh, and hopefully we'll be there to, to protect against it, David, because... Uh, Look, this is a, a solution that's being offered to the people. How many examples do we have of these? And at some point, it'll get stymied by something. Yeah, and it just highlights the need. The approach to most issues should be, okay, is it a real issue? So broadband or, or internet access in rural communities, yeah, that's a real issue. Are there private um, alternatives or services that are seeking to fix it? If the answer is yes, how do we get the government out of the way? That should be the approach from <laughs> whether we're talking about internet service. <laughs> yeah, good luck. Or, yeah, but th- but that think about how much easier our lives would be if the government, whether we're talking about federal, state, provincial, etc., took issues um, that are important to us and then used that as the criteria to evaluate what to do and go, oh, okay, there's someone who wants to solve this that doesn't involve taxpayer money, that doesn't involve bureaucracy and regulation and inflating prices and all of that jazz how do we get out of the way while protecting consumers obviously but how do we get out of the way to make that happen that's 
when when I am prime minister one day, that will be my approach to government. <laughs> the uh, the official launching of the uh, David Clement consumer campaign, uh, to <laughs> prime minister of Canada. That, that's uh, it's good to know. Uh, I wish everyone all the best for their holidays. Happy uh, Canada Day, July fourth, and all the best. Uh, we'll catch you next week. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Ososki and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy, and science, Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at ConsumerCRadio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening. of America is here.